Well, good morning. My name is Ryan Moore, one of the pastors on staff. Good to be with you. If you brought a Bible, go ahead and open it up to 1 Kings chapter 21. Last week we did chapter 19 and moving right along in our series on the prophets Elijah and Elisha. Um, our mission team will get back sometime next week, but I also wanted to note that we'll have the privilege of hearing from our very own Keith Berger next week. So I'm excited to continue along in our series with him. But uh, as you turn there, and if you're using the, um, the Pew Bible there on page 304, 303-304, uh, just a little uh, reminder, last week we saw how God uh, really restored some of the despair in his prophet over the lack of faith that he saw throughout Israel. Um, but hopefully the, the hope of what we saw in chapter 19 was that God's words and his, his mission goes forward. His plans aren't always our plans. And, um, and as he has been told to go um, uh, anoint Elisha, who will be the prophet in his place, uh, we pick up in chapter 21 where Elijah still has work to do, and he's still acting faithfully on behalf of the Lord. And we come to this story in chapter 21 that is really continuing to build on the, the idolatry of Ahab, King Ahab, who is king of Israel, and his wife uh, Jezebel. So uh, with that in mind, let's give our attention to the reading of God's word. It's a little bit lengthy, but um, I trust that you can hang in there with me. Beginning in chapter 1. Now Naboth the Jezreelite, Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden. Because, this, because it is near my house and I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into, the, went into his house vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would not eat or drink. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit, spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth, the Jezreelite, and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. Verse 8. So she wrote letters to a in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. And she sent the letters to the elders and, and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people and set two worthless men opposite to him and let them bring a charge against him, saying, You have cursed God and the king, and then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of his, men of, of his city, the elders and the leaders who lived in his city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them. As it was written in the letters that she had sent, sent to them, they proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the table um, of the people. And the two worthless men came in and sat opposite to him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God 
and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel saying, Naboth has been stoned. He is dead. Verse 15, as soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you, give you for money. For Naboth is not alive, but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth and uh, the Jezreelite to take possession of it. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick your own blood. Ahab said to Elijah, have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off and will cut off from uh, Ahab every male bond or free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and, and like the house of Bashah, the son of Ahijah. For the anger to which you have provoked me, and because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel the Lord also said, The dog shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. And anyone who, of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. Verse 25. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. Verse 27. And when Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days, I will bring the disaster upon his house. Let us pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray again this morning that you would take something that is removed and distant from our own culture and that you will um, help us to understand it and see it, how it fits in the full canon of your scripture and how it points to Jesus and the gospel for us this morning. Uh, would you be pleased to do so? We ask this all in your son's name. Amen. This whole water thing is not a dramatic pause. I, I don't know if it's just not getting used to the Texas weather yet, but I mean, I just cannot get my throat uh, wet enough. Um, so there you go. That's more information than you wanted. <clears throat> Some of you all have uh, heard of the comedian Brian Regan, and, and if you've heard of him, you've probably heard of one of his, his, uh, his bits. 
where he talks about the me monster. And the me monster is the person at the dinner party who is constantly one-upping anybody's story in order to make the party about themselves, okay? So, you know, you might be sharing uh, a little story about what you did this summer and how you got to go see Coldplay this summer. And it was one of the greatest concerts you've ever been to. And you and a friend went. It was wonderful. Well, the me monster would come in and they would say, oh, yeah, I love them too. Did I tell you that I actually dated Will Champion? He's the drummer of Coldplay. Um, that tour when it came out, with, uh, when the album Rush of Blood to the Head came out, I got to go to every single show that year. It was awesome. But where did, you, where did you sit? You sat, okay, that's cool. You know, they would just sort of one-up you with another story. Or maybe you're talking about how things are going so well with work and how much you love what you're doing. And then the me monster comes out and says, I actually took my first company public. Yeah, and um, uh, that was my first million. But, you know, uh, you know, you just this kind of building on uh, or desire to make this thing about themselves uh, Regan shares uh, uh, the social fantasy that he has at the end of his joke, though, which is awesome. And that is that he, he dreams about being one of the 12 astronauts that's actually walked on the moon. And for this very purpose, that whenever the me monster would come out at a dinner party or something, he could just sit back and wait, let him go, let her go, whatever it is. And, uh, and then just sort of say, oh, by the way, I've been on the moon. And just kind of end it there, right? It's great. Uh, there's a similar danger, the reason why I, I tell that, there's a similar danger when it comes to reading the Bible and especially passages uh, like the one that we just heard. And that is there is always the danger of wanting to make the story we're reading about ourselves. Uh, there's always the danger, there's, there's always the me monster you know, lurking in the shadows as we read scripture, wanting to make this about ourselves you and I will always have the tendency to do that. And the danger of that is that we, one, will miss what the text is actually saying to us in the same way that as if we're dialoguing at a dinner party and my me monster's coming out, I'm not hearing you. I'm not even trying to listen to you. But two, we make something about us when it's actually about someone else. And what's dangerous about a story like this in 1 Kings 21 is, is we want to make this story about us when it's actually about God himself. It is actually about God himself. And so I'm completely rewriting your outline that's on your, your bolt in there because Thursday just isn't long enough for me to get a good outline when they needed to make the, make the boltons. So here's your new outline. It's a lot more simple. I want us to see the danger in the passage. I want us to see the confusion in the passage and the deliverer in the passage. That's it. The danger, the confusion, and the deliverer. Okay. Those are the three things I want us to see this morning. So let's look at that, the danger in this passage, or how we make it about ourselves. And this is, this is the longest of my three points, so uh, they're not, you know, just when we, get, when we get there, don't freak out. So what, the danger in the passage, let's look at this again, this story, if you have your Bibles there. there there's nothing really fun about this story. Um, a humble farmer we read about, minding his own business, it seems, is approached by the king. And uh, he's asked for his vineyard. His vineyard rests up against a corner of his lot, of his palace. And it seems like this is a reasonable option here. I will, he's not trying to confiscate it at this point. He's just saying, look, I'll pay you for it. Um, and if that's not something you want, then how about I give you a better vineyard, right? Seems fine. But Naboth refuses, not because he wouldn't like a better vineyard, not because he doesn't need the money. He refuses because as, as a good Jew, he knows that it's not actually his vineyard to give. 
this, is, this is the whole land inheritance thing that is such a big deal in the Old Testament. The land belongs to God, and God has given it uh, to the tribes of Israel to, to steward it, to have possession of it for sure, but it's not theirs to give. And so when we enter into this, we've got to kind of come into, for Naboth to say no is actually to be the faithful one in the story. And of all people who should care about the land, because the land was also something that, that told Israel, it told you as a Jewish person that you belonged in the membership of God. It was this tangible, tangible uh, act of God delivering you from Egypt, but I'm not just going to deliver you. I'm going to bring you to this place. And that's how you know <clears throat> you're going to be my people. <clears throat> oh, my goodness. It's too early. <clears throat> okay. This is, it's a huge deal. And the one person that should care about this is the king, and the king seems to be so oblivious about this. And he just wants the land for his own use. So what happens? Well, the king goes home and, and we see that he complains and enter his, his lovely wife, who is, is clearly a big problem uh, in First Kings. And she's like, are, are you really crying over this? Aren't you the king? Like, you can go take this if you want to. And so she kind of takes matters in her own hands. And she writes in his name all these letters uh, to, uh, to the elders of the community saying, look, Let's, we're going to have a fast, we're going to have this party, we're going to have this meal, put these people at the head of the table, have them accuse Naboth of, of, of you know, um, <clears throat> crimes against the Lord and the king, you know, whatever it is that, that she would say, and then accuse him and then take him outside and stone him to death. <clears throat> this is what's challenging about this text. This is hard because this is what happens. And the text is very, you know, it's just very matter of fact. They had the fast. They got the two people that had a table. They took Naboth out. They stoned him to death. They told Ahab. They told Jezebel. We did what you did, what you told to do. And then in verse 16, we read, As soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, to take possession of it. This is hard because we hate injustice. And it's exactly what we see here. We hate powerful people taking advantage of people who don't have power. Probably more so than that in one sense. We hate people who are seemingly innocent, who are actually being faithful. Be judged for that in one sense. Be murdered, uh, actually. We hate injustice. This injustice, in one sense, is the 08 housing crisis where the greed of many and the excessive regulations cost innocent people uh, some of their retirement, some of their jobs, some of their lives. Yet, when we read in the papers, who actually gets bailed out about this? It's the bank. Somehow, how does that make sense, right? For some of us, this is that injustice. For some of us, uh, for some people, the injustice that we see here in the Baath is our modern-day Black Lives Matter. Where many minority populations feel that justice is only something that wealthy, powerful people get. And it doesn't belong in my neighborhood. For some people, the injustice is a family who lost a child because she was hit by a drunk driver who was an illegal immigrant in this country. And who had found out previously that they had been arrested before for drunk driving but were released from jail only to get the job that they had before to go driving around to hit my daughter as she was coming home from babysitting that night. That's this injustice. That's why we hate this. 
Naboth was actually being faithful to God. He wasn't bothering anyone, and he was murdered for it. And when we read this story, we want the king and we want the wife to be tried, sentenced for life. But really, we just want the death penalty. We want justice. And we want it now. And we probably want a huge lawsuit attached to that. And when we come to this story, it either makes you say or see, look, this is why I can't believe in God. Because... Not only is he watching this, but he's letting, he's recording it too, right? This is what you say. Or, you know, I believe, but I'm not sure what to do with this. This is just difficult. This is hard. This is challenging. This is why the Old Testament always seems so distant to me, distant to me. But I think it's extremely important for us this morning to wade into the challenge and how difficult this is. To, to wade into the areas of injustice that we are experiencing today as a people. And to connect those things to the story. And to get that on us a little bit. Um, even last week when we talked about um, how gruesome Second Kings 9 depicts the death of Jezebel. That she was unrecognizable. We need to get that on us a little bit. The text does not want us to feel comfortable about this right now. Because up front, the story is saying two things. It's saying, as we read it, wicked people seem to go free. Wicked people seem to get away from it, get away with it. And we sit there and we read this and we think, God, you're going to let Ahab and Jezebel carry this out? You're going to let them take possession of his land? Then you're going to write about it and put it in your Bible? Why do wicked people seem to always get away? That's kind of the first thing that comes out to us. The second thing is God does not protect the innocent. What about Naboth? Why couldn't you stop this? You're clearly aware of it. Is this how you reveal yourself? Are these your ways? I'm not sure I want to be a part of a God where, whose ways are like this. A faithful man has his land stolen by wicked people who seem to get away with it. And we hate it. And we should. We should. But that's not the danger of the passage. The danger in this passage is that it isn't about Naboth. It's not even about his injustice. This passage is about Yahweh. And I want to make this really clear. It is about Yahweh himself. And as we'll see, it's about the injustice that he experiences and will experience on the cross so that wicked people can go free. And as hard as the injustice is in this text for us, the real difficulty, the real danger of this text is that the Bible is trying to show me that it's not, that I'm, I'm not to identify with Naboth here. It's actually Ahab and Jezebel that I'm to identify with. And are you willing to go there with me this morning? Are you willing to let yourselves be or identify with what you most hate in this text? And let me try to frame it like this. Ahab and Jezebel are King David's. How? They see something they want, they covet it, and they murder to get it. We've seen this story before. We talked about it in Psalm 51 this summer. That's who they are. But let me turn this on myself. As much as I want to think of myself as a faithful farmer, right? Stewarding his land, not bothering anyone. 
The reality is, at best, I'm a, I'm a coveter. I covet. And I'm a murderer of others in my heart, at best. And for that, I deserve God's judgment. I want things that aren't mine all the time because God is not enough for me. Which makes me a covenant breaker of the first and second and tenth commandments. I am an idolater. I, this, this, this is one of the major things of this whole book, idolatry. This text wants to show you this about yourself. My heart does not worship solely at the altar of Yahweh. I have had many, many, many more stops along the way this week. Stops at the altar of self-reliance, self-care, self-dependence, self-centeredness. I love me some me. And at any given point in the day, I want the world to revolve around me. And I'm actually living as though it does. You can ask my wife. And that's just like Ahab and Jezebel. It's just like them. And even if it doesn't show itself in all of my actions, it's up here in my mind. I'm thinking much worse things. I worship money. Why? Because it's the only thing that I can find that that cuts into that dependency that I'm supposed to have on God in the first place. I love to feel independent of him. I I don't want him to provide for everything. I want to feel like I can actually do some things. So I idolize money. I worship my work. Why? Because that's where I want to find my value of myself. I want to value myself by my efforts, by my work, by the product that I bring to the market, by the service that I bring to you this morning. Not in who Jesus says that I am. I idolize sex and food and drink because those things make me feel good by pushing other things that don't make me feel good away. Yeah, I'm an Ahab. I need to be careful how fast I say that. I'm an Ahab. I'm an Ahab and Jezebel. You're an Ahab and Jezebel. And this story is not about us. It's about God. And don't get me wrong. The injustice in this text is is troubling and it will be addressed. But chapter 21 isn't about the injustice that you and I experience today. It's about the injustice that God experiences so that wicked people like Ahabs and myself can go free. And this gets to the second point, much shorter, the confusion of the text. The confusion of the text. So that was the, that was the danger of the text. Don't, don't make this about yourself this morning. Make this about someone else. Make this about God. But the confusion of the text <clears throat> is how God actually responds to sin and how it's not the way that we would respond to sin if it were up to us. What God, in fact, does to wicked people is he offers mercy and grace. Let me show this to you. What happens in the rest of the story here, verse 17 and 24, okay? This is the part of the story we actually really like. Why? Because God sends his prophet Elijah to confront Ahab. In other words, if you you notice this, Elijah had no idea what was going on, right? And and, and as the the narrator sort of shares this story with us, nobody else has any idea what's going on. And also the elders, by, by virtue of them, Acting this out and fulfilling the wishes of Jezebel and the king, they're just as guilty too. But they cover it up, don't they? And this could just go on for all eternity and no one would ever know any different. But in 19, we find out, no, 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 no. 
all things do not go unnoticed. God sees all things. There's nothing you are doing or I'm doing or anything that's been done to us that God is not aware of and doesn't see and won't deal with at some point. And so we get that here in verse 19. And he tells his prophet, you go tell Ahab, hey, I know exactly what you did. You, t- you killed this man. You took possession of his, of his inheritance. Do you think you're going to get away with this? And so he tells Elijah, I want you to tell him about the judgment now that I'm going to bring upon him and his family. And that's what we get in verse 24. And it's at verse 24 that I'm like, let's stop right there and let's go home. This is how I would handle this, right? I like some of that reading in in 1 Kings 21 there. I like all that, that, you know, yeah, let's mess this person up, right? Let's, let's, Let's get back here. That's what we would do. That's how we would punish wicked people like Ahab. But that's not what God does. And this is the confusion in the text. We've got five pesky verses left that we wish weren't there. In verses 27 and 29, Ahab repents. Sort of. At least I'm left wondering. Is this real? And then God tells Elijah in verse 29, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? What? What? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days I will bring the disaster upon his house. And if you're Elijah, you might be thinking, and we don't get this from him, Sorry, was that mercy I just heard? You're, you're going to give him mercy? You're going to show him grace because he apparently is all of a sudden repenting? How, how do you know if that's a true repentance? How, how are you going to trust this? How? I'm not saying those are his words at all. I'm just, those are certainly my words. This is what we think when we get here. And it's at this point that we can kind of take a page from last week. God's ways are not our ways. This is not how I would deal with this. One of the most challenging, confusing stories of the Bible for me is is when Moses, a faithful man uh, who has done so much for the Lord, um, is in the desert and he he actually hits this rock in a a wrong way to bring water to people. He's doing a good thing. And the Lord pronounces a judgment over him. He says, you will not enter the promised land because of that. What? I don't get that passage. Now, look, I understand that it has something to do with God's holiness. I'll rest it there. But that's not how I would have responded to Moses. Okay, you've done enough. You can get in. Like, that's how I would respond. And another story that troubles me, there's a man named Uzzah in 2 Samuel 6 who is helping move the Ark of the Covenant. This, is, this would be Israel's most treasured possession because this is where God would actually reside. And so they were moving the covenant. And at one point in time, the covenant is about to fall in some mud. And the natural thing that Uzzah does that you would do is you reach out to kind of support it. And that's what he does. But what happens? He's, he's struck dead immediately. He dies. <laughs> what? This doesn't make any sense. 
I don't understand this. And I get that it's telling me something about the holiness of God, but that's not what I would have done. And here we are again in 1 Kings 21 with yet another confusing story. God chooses to offer the wicked people in the story, the unjust, he chooses to give them grace and mercy. Is that how you and I would have done it? I'm not, I'm not sure I would. I'll speak for myself. So how is God going to fix this mess? If it isn't about the injustice we experience, what is it about? It's about the injustice God experiences so that wicked people like you and me and Ahab can go free. That's why those pesky, last pesky five verses are there. And this gets to our third point, the the deliverer in the passage. How does God write this? How does he offer mercy to wicked people? How does he let innocent people go punished, such as Naboth, and not do anything about it? And the answer is, and this is the grace of the text, when wicked people ask for help in the Bible, they get it. They get it. When wicked people repent, God actually grants them repentance. He gives them mercy. And how does he do that? Well, ultimately, it's by somebody else dying. Someone has to pay for this. Someone will pay for the injustice that happened to Naboth. But at this point in time, it won't be Ahab. Someone has to pay for this, and we find out later in the book of Matthew that it's Jesus. It's God himself. He is the deliverer in this passage. See, mercy and grace is available to Moses because someone's going to die for him. Someone's going to die for the things that he did wrong. We call this sin. Mercy and grace is available to Uzzah because someone is going to die in his place too. Mercy and grace is available here to Ahab because no matter how wicked he is. And verses 25 and 26 are are essentially saying, look, let me remind you before I, I offer him mercy. Let me remind you about how bad that he is. Because somebody is going to die for it. And 1 Kings 21 is here this morning to tell you and to tell me that mercy and grace are offered to you right now because someone has died for you in your place. The injustice of this passage isn't what happens to Naboth, as we've been saying, or his vineyard, although that is injustice and it will be dealt with, as I've said. The injustice of the passage is what happens to Jesus. The real Naboth, the story, so that you and I, the Ahabs of the world, might go free. No one is innocent in this story. Not even Naboth. I mean, we know that, right? Our Reformed theology tells us that. None of us in this world are innocent. The only innocent man to walk this earth is Jesus. And what did he get for that? He got death. That's injustice. So that what? You and you and you and me, we might be able to walk free. It's not how I would have done it. Thankfully, what God chooses to do that none of us would do is pay the price for someone else's wickedness. 
And for those who would receive it, for those who would repent and say, I need help, I need mercy, I I need what you have to offer, the Lord grants that. He's happy to deliver that to you. He's happy to offer his son to you. That's how God writes this. Jesus is the true deliverer in this passage. He's the true deliverer in 1 Kings 21. And he's the true deliverer for all the atrocities that the human race has put on one another, past, present, and future, because he puts it on himself. And he does so at the cross. Some application here. As we try to land the plane, we've seen the danger in the passage about making this about God and not ourselves we looked at the confusion that God really responds in a different way here than I would have. But we see the gospel in that because the deliverer of the passage is that wicked people go free because of the injustice that happens to Jesus. Now, I want to be very clear about something. God cares about injustice. This is not a passage that says, look, I don't care what you've been through. You need to look at Jesus and then it won't be so bad. That's absolutely not what I'm saying. This passage actually helps me believe that God cares about injustice. He just deals with it differently and better than I would. God's message to us about injustice is this. Vengeance is mine. He said this to Israel in Deuteronomy. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. Leave it to the wrath of God. And Paul will pick this back up in Romans. And then whoever the author of Hebrews is will say it again. Reminding The Christians, that vengeance is mine. Why is this important? Why is this helpful? Because what this means is that as Christians, we can rest that all the wrongs that have and will happen to me, God is going to deal with. And this is why you need the justice of God. This is why you need the mess in this text. You need to get the blood on you. Because without justice, without the justice of the cross that it offers, you have nothing to lay your head on at night that the wrongs that have happened in your life or the wrongs that have happened in your family's life will ever be righted. But God says vengeance is mine. Why? Because he wants you to know that he has this taken care of so that you can go on and begin to fight for the injustices of those around you, the powerless and the marginalized who do not have a voice. He wants you to take the eyes off of yourself He wants you to heal. Don't hear what I'm not saying. But he wants you to have the ability to go into this world caring about the Naboth of Fort Worth. And the only way you're going to be able to do that is if you really believe and trust that the cross will and does satisfy the justice of God. And that vengeance is his. And that he and his wrath will will right all wrongs in the ages to come. That there will be a final judgment. And all those who are not taken up in Christ, I use that metaphorically, who are not in Christ, they will receive that judgment. The only way I stand up for the the, the boss in this world is if I truly believe that God rights wrongs in the end. God cares about injustice. Don't hear that. Don't hear what I'm not saying, that somehow he doesn't from this passage. The second thing I want you to see is that the gospel has to change you. What I hope this passage is saying to you this morning is that if there is hope for Ahab, there's hope for you. That, that if Ahab can, can receive mercy, 
that, that somehow someone that wicked, that bad can receive the mercy and grace of God, then, then maybe it's possible that I too haven't worked myself outside of the grace of God. That if it's, if, if, if it's, if a repentance from Ahab is good enough for God, then a repentance from me certainly is good enough. This also means that I'm never too good that I don't need God's grace, by the way. But I hope what you, what you see here is that, is that Ahab tells us that, that, that grace is offered and available to any of us. And why this is important is that when you know that you didn't get your just desserts, you begin to be more patient with others. Tim Keller, in his book that I would totally recommend on this subject, Generous Justice, writes this. He says, justification, which is how we are made right with God, is the doctrine that God has not given up, or excuse me, is the doctrine that God has not given us our just deserts. So when we grab onto that and we live out of that, what we're saying is, is I didn't get what I deserved. That's great. <laughs> And what it has to do then is, is allow you then to be caring for the injustice of others. And the gospel is really the only thing that begins to allow us to go do that in a way that honors the Lord. Because when I realized I did not get my just desserts, as I said, I had to be more patient with other people, don't I? Like, I have to be more patient with those who are around me who are asking for justice. Maybe, I, maybe it causes me to be more sympathetic or even empathetic as to what is going on around me in my neighborhood or my city. I can't just take this message and not do anything with it. That's why the gospel has to change us. It makes us become lovers of real justice. Because we too did not get what we deserved. It got put on somebody else. You begin to say, hey, I actually have more in common with this person than I ever thought. I'm an Ahab just like this person. But that only happens when we see that this story is not about us. Remember that.